0: Today on Something You Should Know. Have you ever eavesdropped or snooped on someone? I'm sure you have, and I know why. Then, financial advice that isn't all about cutting back and saving money. I believe that we
1: should spend extravagantly on the things we love, as long as we cut costs mercilessly on the things we don't. So I wanna start by asking people what they love. And the most common answers are eating out, travel, and health and wellness.
0: Also, there are some common foods that taste better frozen that you've probably never tried. And there are so many subtle things that influence your behavior and success. For instance...
2: People tend to work harder when others are around. Cyclists race faster, runners run faster. People work harder when others are present. And so rather than trying to hit our goals by ourselves, we can use
0: others to help us get there. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have a job opening and you need to hire someone, what are the chances, when you think about it, what are the chances of finding a great match inside your circle of influence? Pretty slim. I mean, even if you put the word out there, a lot of people who may be perfect are never going to hear about it. That's why you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that will help you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed does it all. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with these candidates faster. But it's not just about the speed. It's about the quality. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about Indeed is how efficient it is. You get quality candidates, you get them fast, and well, that's what it's all about. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, too. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. Hi, welcome, and thank you for listening to Something You Should Know. Clearly, you have a lot of choices. You could be listening to one of bazillions of podcasts, and I appreciate the fact that you chose Something You Should Know to listen to today. First up, have you ever eavesdropped and maybe felt guilty about it? Well, turns out that eavesdropping or snooping is something pretty much everybody does. It's human nature, and it once served a very important purpose— Survival. In fact, all animals eavesdrop. In order to protect ourselves from our enemies, we're wired to try to discover things they don't want us to know. Conversely, we keep secrets from people about things we don't want them to know. Think about the purpose of a whisper. The only reason people whisper is to tell something so that someone else doesn't hear it. Although it's considered bad behavior to eavesdrop, it's pretty hard not to do. Even though we don't need to do it for survival so much anymore, we still have that curiosity to know what other people are doing behind closed doors. We satisfy that desire today with things like reality TV, social media. All of those things tap into our biologically driven need to peek into other people's lives. And that is something you should know. Money is always a fascinating topic because I think we all have our own issues with and beliefs about money and how we approach it. Ramit Sethi is somebody who has a really good understanding of money and how people relate to it and ways to make that relationship better. Back in 2009, he published a big best-selling book called I Will Teach You to Be Rich, And a revised second edition recently came out and has again become a big bestseller. I think because his advice is different from most advice you hear about money, he has a really refreshing way to look at it and will make you feel less guilty about how you spend your money. Hi, Ramit. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So I think when people hear they're going to get some financial advice from someone like you, it's going to be stop using your credit cards cut back stop doing it's all about deprivation and and putting your money away somewhere so you can't spend it and and living a very austere life and and nobody wants to do that so what do you say to that
1: first of all i just want to say that i have a pretty realistic approach to money i think you should use credit cards i i don't agree with some of the popular advice out there that credit cards are evil and you should stop using them guess what if you use credit cards and you use them wisely, you get massive returns, uh, rewards like free hotels, free flights, etc. But the critical thing is you need to use them wisely. So everyone already knows that they should pay off their credit card debt. That's a given. And yet they don't. Why is that? Because the credit cards, number one, are engineered to get us to spend more. And number two, we don't understand the math behind it. So. Step number one is you wanna make sure that you have the right accounts. That means the right bank accounts and the right credit cards. So let me get a little bit specific here. I think many people use the same bank accounts they used when their parents opened an account for them. There are a lot better accounts these days. They offer better interest rates. They let you withdraw from any ATM with no fees. Then with your credit cards, There are great credit cards that offer you amazing rewards. We're talking about 2% cash back. We're talking about amazing travel rewards. Get them. And then the third, and this is really important, you need to automate your payments. So what happens with a lot of people is they don't want to give up control. So what they do is they get these bills at the end of the month, and because they don't have a spending plan in place, they sort of get all these bills, they shrug, and they go, oh, I guess I spent that much. And that is how they start to get on this hamster wheel of debt. Uh, I can talk about how to pay off debt, and I can share some pretty interesting psychological findings about people in debt. But those are the three components. Get the right bank account, get the right credit cards, and automate your payments.
0: All right, talk about debt and the problems people have with it.
1: Okay, if you ask people who are in debt, for everybody listening right now, if you've got any sort of debt, if I asked you how much do you owe, guess what percentage of people don't even know the answer to that?
0: Oh, uh, oh, uh, that's, I know that. That's got to be really high. it has got to be almost everybody. You're
1: right. It's over 90%. Now, I ask a second question. What is the date that your debt will be paid off? Almost nobody knows the answer to that. But if you have debt, It's not the end of the world, okay? I've talked to people who have $3,000 of debt. I've talked to people who have $250,000 of debt. It's not the end of the world. You absolutely can make a plan to pay it off. But you should know the exact month and year your debt will be paid off. That means that you have a debt payoff plan. It means that you know exactly how much money you're contributing. And it means that you've automated it. And just think of the relief. (sighs) Once you know that date, It could be two years in the future, two months, five years, but at least you know it's happening. And what is amazing about that is once people make a plan, they start to become pretty uh, aggressive about it. For example, if you have student loans and you pay an extra $100 a month, you can often cut that down by years. Okay, People don't understand this because it's just this murky number in the back of their head. So make a debt payoff plan if you've got it. And most people, again, they don't know how much they owe. They don't know what their debt payoff plan is, but it's not that hard. And once you plan it out and automate it, it's like, wow, I can see a light at the end of the tunnel.
0: So let's talk about spending money and advice for people who are maybe spending too much money.
1: You know, most of the advice that we hear is someone coming on a show like this and starting to berate everyone listening and saying, don't spend money on lattes, don't buy jeans, don't go on vacation. And I just never wanted to live life like that. And I frankly don't even think that's good advice. Saving $3 a day doesn't even really add up to that much at all. What matters and what is more important is getting those five to 10 big wins in life right. If you get those big wins right, just five or 10 of them, you never have to worry about ordering a latte or a coffee or an appetizer, ever. So some of those big wins are automatically saving and investing are finding a great job and if possible, negotiating your salary. Uh, I think if you're in a relationship, finding a relationship with the right person is a huge financial big win. Sounds counterintuitive, but it's one of the most important determinants of your financial health. So if you get these five to 10 right, you don't need to worry about $3 expenses here and there. And that's the difference in how you approach money once you integrate your psychology Versus just this random advice that you see on the news all the time. I got to say, it drives me nuts. That's why I'm really happy to be able to be here and share this different perspective.
0: But the fact is that a lot of people who are in trouble with money are in trouble because they spent too much. They spent money they didn't have and now they're in debt. And so it would make sense, you would think, that the way you get out of trouble is to cut back on spending. That that's the route
1: out well, let me, let me provide a different perspective on spending. Okay, Mike, let me ask you a question. What is something you love to spend money on? Not just like, but love.
0: So my boys love hockey. They play hockey. So I love spending money on them, on hockey things.
1: Perfect. Okay, this is amazing. Now, one last question here. If you could quadruple the amount that you spend on your kids for hockey or anything else, what would it look like?
0: Oh, I don't know. You know go to more NHL games, g- travel to other NHL games, get them some great coaches to improve their game, I guess, that kind of stuff.
1: Okay, first of all, I just want to point out a couple things, and I want everyone listening to follow along. Mike, thanks for having the courage to answer that question. Notice that you were a little uncomfortable answering the quadruple question. Why is that? Because most people have never thought about spending more on the things they love. Most people have only been told to cut back on everything. If I asked you right now, Mike, what do you spend too much on? What should you cut back on? You would have 50 answers for me. Coffee, this, that, my car, my house, whatever. But when I ask people, what do you love spending on? They all have an answer. And then I ask them this question about what I call a money dial. What if you turned that dial up, 2X, 4X, 10X? Nobody's ever thought about it. But the answer, I love what you said about taking your kids to it to a NHL game. Maybe you would do a meet and greet behind the scenes with the greatest hockey player of all time. Maybe you'd hire him a a different tutor or coach. There's so many things you could do. I share this example because I believe that we should spend extravagantly on the things we love as long as we cut costs mercilessly on the things we don't. So while everyone else is busy here feeling guilty about $3 here, $5 there, I wanna start by asking people what they love. And the most common answers are eating out, travel, and health and wellness. Those are the most three common by far. So if I ask people what would it look like to spend more on eating out, they typically give very linear answers. They're like, oh, I go out once a week, I'd go out four times a week. And I challenge them, what if you actually, went deeper than just more might you eat at a different restaurant and I remember I asked this guy in DC and he said first of all he just said I would eat out four times and I pushed him he finally said I have a list of every Michelin starred restaurant I would go to every single one of them and I said awesome who would you take with you and he stopped he stepped back he smiled and he looked at me he said I would take my parents because they've never been able to afford something like that so that is the power of using money to live a rich life. It's totally different than feeling guilty about cutting back here and there. And that's where I want people to start, is to think about spending extravagantly on the things they love, but cutting costs mercilessly on the things they don't.
0: When you say, when you talk about wise use of credit cards, is wise use of credit cards having, uh, paying off the balance every month, is that wise use of credit cards?
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: And do you ever think that well, some expense, some uh, purchases might need a couple months to pay off? Never.
1: If you if you do that, you you're making a mistake, and you should not be buying that right now. I'm generally very generous with people when it comes to their financial management, but I'm a stickler for a couple things. If you can't afford to pay off your credit card debt this month, then you need to not buy that.
0: But some people will have you know, car expenses because their car broke and they can't pay it all off this month, but they need their car. So it might take them a couple of months to pay
1: it off. Well, that's different. So first of all, that's an accident. That's something that was not predictable up front. But given enough time, almost all of these unexpected expenses are predictable. I'll give you an example. Uh, I used to get parking tickets. And to me, I was like, oh man, this parking ticket came out of nowhere. But when I looked at a year and a half of expenses, they were actually pretty predictable. Every few months I got a parking ticket. So I created a sub savings account, which everybody can do. And you can start to put money away and you can put them away for things like you know car repair. You can also put them away for things like Christmas gifts that you know are going to come up in December or vacation. So when you go on vacation, suddenly you've got this money set aside.
0: We're discussing some practical advice to save, spend, and invest your money with Ramit Sethi. He's author of the book, I Will Teach You to Be Rich. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called... The Future of Robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Ramit, you know, I once heard someone say this, and I think it's true that, that, you know, people have that emergency car expense or that emergency something goes wrong with the water heater thing. And yes, you can't plan for those, Except that if you look at back at your expenses, something always happens. There's You may yeah. not be able to tell exactly what's going to happen, but something always happens and you need to plan for that. And, and that makes a lot of sense to me.
1: Me too. And I, I have to say, I have a lot of empathy for people who always feel like they're trying their best and then something comes up. And I can understand, especially if you've got an old car or you live in a place that's constantly breaking down. I completely understand that. The answer though, is not to just keep trying to put a bandaid on it. The answer is to step back and realize, wow, I might need to play a totally different game. And that game means I need to make a plan, set an emergency fund up, automate it. And then if I have to use it, I'm set. That way I don't fall two steps behind when something comes up because it always will.
0: Well, it's kind of refreshing to hear this advice because you're really coming at it from a different perspective rather than the usual, you know, stop spending money here, don't waste money on that, cut back on everything. You're saying, you know, spend money on the things you like and don't waste money on the things you don't. And, and it makes perfect sense. And I think people need to hear that.
1: Thank you. Thank you for saying that. And that is exactly how I feel. I think when you ask most people, what are the first words that come to mind when you think of money? they will almost always say the same things. Shame, guilt, embarrassment, and is it too late? These are super common. Every single one of them is negative. What I like to hear people say after they read my book is calm, cool, collected, I have a plan, and I'm living a rich life. And what I love about this concept is If your rich life is sitting front row at a hockey game, or if it's buying a really nice leather jacket, or eating out at an amazing restaurant once a month, once a week for that matter, great, be my guest. I'll show you how to do it. And I think that there's too much judgment in the personal finance world. I think that honestly, people want to spend money on the things they love. They do need a little bit of guidance as to how to make it all work. But if they focus on the five or 10 things that matter, and they learn certain things that are super counterintuitive, like the power of investing, if they learn about how to negotiate their salary, if they learn that, wow, buying a house is not always the best investment, and that renting can be a really good financial decision, that's super uh, not talked about suddenly people start to realize, wow, I can take control of my money and create my rich life. It's totally different than what everybody hears every day.
0: Okay. Lastly, since you just brought it up, uh, negotiate your salary. What's the best way to tackle that?
1: Okay. um, When it comes to negotiating your salary, I have helped thousands of people do it. And a lot of them uh, negotiate between six and $20,000 on average. That's a big number, but it depends on how much they're already making. So the typical advice that people think is that they're gonna kick down their boss's door and just stick out their hand and say, give me money. That's not how it works. Uh, There's a much better approach, but it means you have to slow down. So the first thing you wanna do is you wanna ask your boss, can I set up a meeting? I'd like to understand what it takes to be a top performer here. You meet your boss, you ask him, look, you know, I think I'm doing a good job, but I really like to do a great job. What would it take? And you discuss that. You summarize it. You start to execute on that. And then by the time you go back and meet your boss, which is typically three to six months later, you've got the data and I show you where to pull the salary numbers from. And you come there and you're polite and happy. Your boss is happy too, because you're making him or her look amazing. You pull like theatrically, you pull these papers out of your briefcase or your bag, it's called the briefcase technique, and you show them, this is what I've done, this is what people in my role are typically paid, I'd like to discuss a compensation adjustment. And notice that there's no surprise, because your boss already knows this is coming. Now, I'm simplifying the whole thing here, but what you can find is that most people are underpaid by thousands, and to get a three, five, or $10,000 raise is a massive change to people's lifestyle. So people forget there's a limit to how much you can cut, but there's no limit to how much you can earn. And you can earn more by negotiating your salary. There's so many ways, but people forget, and they focus only on cutting, they forget that you can earn more money too.
0: And when you earn more money and you have more money, you have theoretically money to invest. So let's talk about investing.
1: Right now, I can tell you there's tons of people listening saying, yeah, investing feels like gambling to me. And what people don't understand is that if you save money, that's a good thing, give yourself a pat on the back, but your money is still losing money every day it's in your savings account. And the way to true wealth is not winning the lottery or some insurance settlement, it's actually simple, low-cost investing. It's not that hard, it's pretty straightforward, we can talk about it, but it's not gambling. And so I want everyone to be able to take their own wealth and their own money into their own hands, and the way you do that is by investing. In what? Okay, let's talk about what most people think. When they think about investing, what do they do? They think there's some massive computer screen in front of them with all these green things rolling by, P.E. ratios. That's nonsense. That's what people put in movies. You don't need to have those screens. In fact, you don't need to spend more than an hour a month on your money. You shouldn't, because the more time you spend... Looking at the stock market, you're gonna lose money. The way that you invest is to pick a simple, low cost, target date fund. And you basically, let me tell you how it works. If you go to a a typical low cost company, all you need to know is how old you are. That's it. People think investing is about picking stocks, but it's not. What you wanna do is you wanna pick something called a target date fund. And a target date fund, I'll tell you why it's special. Number one, it's one fund that automatically includes stocks, bonds, all that stuff. So you don't have to sit there and pick it out. And it's a good thing because most individual investors are not very good at that. The second thing that's really powerful is that as you get older, it automatically rebalances. It becomes a little bit more conservative. And that means that as you get older, your money stays safer. This is a really, really simple way to invest. And all it means is you set it up automatically every month money comes out of your paycheck, it goes into your investment account, boom, your money will start to accumulate and grow and grow. And that's where the magic of compounding comes in. And
0: where do you get these funds?
1: Okay, you can find these at any fund company. So I invest through Vanguard, I don't have any association with them, but any of these great companies, Fidelity, Schwab, they all have them. But let me tell you why most people don't know about these. So if you go outside and look at a billboard, you're gonna see these nonsense advertising that say things like, be better than average. And this really hits home with Americans because in our relationships, we wanna be better than average. At work, we wanna be better than average. But in investing, average is absolutely perfect. That's exactly where you wanna be. So what happens with the typical American is that they absorb these messages that, oh, I really need to pay some guy to look after my money. And what we don't realize is there's a lot of secret things that Wall Street bundles in that they hide from the average investor. I'll give you one number that most people don't know. Did you know that if you pay someone to manage your money, let's say you pay a 1% fee. Well, that doesn't sound like a lot. 1% for me to not have to worry about it, some guy takes care of it. Guess how much of your returns you're now paying because of that 1% fee. Take a guess, Mike. Oh, I I have no idea. 28% of your returns. What? 28% of your returns are now going to someone's pocket. Why would you pay that? It doesn't make any sense. It's not like hiring someone to come clean your house or mow the lawn, that's a flat fee. What people don't understand, and the math is very counterintuitive, is that if you're paying 1%, That's 28% of your returns going away. 2%, that's over 56% of your returns going to this person. How does that math work? I don't get it. Exactly. So you think, oh, 1%, that's not that much. But you have to remember, it compounds over time. But here's the basic gist of it. You pay 1% and you say, oh, I have um, $1,000, so I'm paying 1%. That's not that much. But remember, your money is growing over time. You keep contributing. And it's 1% of all assets under management. So as your money grows, they continue to take 1% and that money compounds over time. Time it becomes bigger and bigger. You want to use compounding to your advantage, not to some financial advisor's advantage. So here's what I'm saying. Most people who complain about money have never spent one weekend reading a good book about personal finance. I want people to take this seriously. I want you to read a good book. And I want you to realize you can take control of most of the finances in your life.
0: Well, there's something refreshing, empowering, and kind of freeing about your advice. Uh, You know, spend money on the things you want and don't spend money on the things you don't. But really enjoy spending money on the things you want. And, And, you know, that sounds like a better life. Ramit Sethi has been my guest. He is the author of the very popular book, I Will Teach You to Be Rich, and you can see that book, and there's a link to it at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Ramit.
1: Thanks, Mike. I really appreciate it.
0: Some people are just more influential than others, and some people are more influential in some situations than others. So what are those factors that make someone influential, particularly those hard-to-detect but powerful factors that make somebody very influential? And more importantly, how can you become more influential? Here to discuss that is Jonah Berger. Jonah is a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and author of several books, including Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior, Hi, Jonah. So is being influential and being persuasive, do you think it's it's a talent? Is it a gift or what?
2: Well, not so much. Uh, you know, we definitely have people in our own lives that that seem to be more influential, but we can be more influential ourselves if we understand what makes people influential in the first place. Um, some researchers looked at negotiators to try to figure out what made certain negotiators more successful. And they found that one simple trick uh, led negotiators to be much more successful, to reach better outcomes uh, and get a bigger slice of the pie. And that trick very simply was imitating their negotiating partner. Uh, their negotiating partner crossed their legs. They did the same thing. Their negotiating partner uh, rested their hand on uh, their cheek on their hand. They did the same. Subtly imitating or mirroring the mannerisms, the words, the language uh, used by someone else led negotiators to be more successful. Same, same thing actually in a sales context. So in a, a restaurant engagement, uh, for example, if the waiter or waitress uh, reads your order back to you word for word, they just got a 70% higher tip. Uh, and so it's not just that certain people are naturally more influential than others. They use some of these tools that we ourselves can use. We don't just want to listen to others. We want to emulate them as well. Whether their language or their mannerisms, uh, the more we seem similar, uh, the more likely they'll be to like us, to trust us, and the better those interactions will go.
0: I imagine most people would think, "Gosh, that seems so simple and so uh, elementary that it, it couldn't work." How could that be a way to be influential just by mirroring back? Or so there must be other ways that we don't think of that are kind of below the radar there that that work. What, correct?
2: Yeah. And, you know, in this case, imagine you and I are chatting and we find out we have the same birthday, went to the same high school. Suddenly we feel like we have more in common. We feel a kinship. We like each other more. We trust each other more and our interactions go better. And that's exactly what mimicry does. But mimicry is only one of the the dozens of uh, subtle and often surprising tools that another great one is the power of peers to motivate us. How can we use others to help us reach our goals? Um, And it turns out that peers can be a great way to do things we couldn't do uh, otherwise. People tend to work harder when others are around. Cyclists race faster. Runners run faster. People work harder when others are present. And so rather than trying to hit our goals by ourselves, we can use others to help us get there. Working out at the gym, for example, rather than at home or going running with someone else rather than running alone will help us run faster, work out harder, and as a result, be more successful.
0: You talk about how new products should be different but not too different. How does that fit into this discussion?
2: Yeah, they're different flavors uh, of influence. Sometimes people do the same thing as others. Sometimes they do something different, and sometimes they do something in between. And this this in-between is really important when launching a new product or idea. Uh, I think a good way to think about it is is pitching like Goldilocks from Goldilocks of, of Three Bears fame. Usually we think it's all about being different a new product or service, we want to talk about how different it is uh, than something people have seen before. If they feel like it's different, they'll want it and will be successful. But if you look actually at successful companies and ideas, they tend not to be different. When you think about Google and Apple, for example, as succeeding because they're different, but Apple actually wasn't the first, or Google wasn't the first to introduce the things they'd become synonymous for. Google wasn't the first company to do online search. They just did it a little better than someone else. Apple wasn't the first to introduce a digital music player. They just did it better than someone else had done. Um, and so if you actually look at the data, it's not about being different. It's about being optimally distinct, similar and different at the same time. You know, If something is too different, People think it's scary. I don't know how to use this. I don't know how to fit this in uh, to my existing world. Why should I buy this if I don't know how I'm going to use it? At the same time, if something is too similar, exactly the same as what we're doing already, what's the, what's the reason to switch? Why do we need to put the effort in to do something different? In between is just right. Just like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, you know, one side's too hot, one side is too cold, but in the middle is just right. When we mix similar and different, we're optimally distinct. That's when companies and ideas end up being successful. Similar enough to feel familiar, to, so people understand it; and they can see how it fits in their life, but different enough to feel novel, feel distinctive, and feel worth adopting.
0: Give me some other um, examples of this, because I mean, there's so many in the book. Of, uh, you say that uh, successful athletes have older siblings. Is, is that going back to the idea of, of having peers that push you along?
2: It's both. It's actually being similar and and, and different uh, at the same time. When when researchers looked at uh, what makes elite athletes successful, or what they have in common, they found that a lot of them had older brothers or sisters. Uh, and you might think it's all about uh, older brothers and sisters playing the same sport. So uh, if your older brother or sister plays tennis, you sort of you know follow them along to the their tennis lessons, and you pick up a racket earlier, and you play with them, and you learn, and you compete, and so you get better. Uh, but it turns out that actually wasn't the case. Um, elite athletes had older brothers and sisters, and those older brothers and sisters tended to play sports, but they were often a different sport uh, from what uh, the younger child ended up succeeding at. And so why was that, was that helpful? Well, it turns out that uh, older siblings do two things. One, they provide a guide, uh, a person to follow to do something, a competitor to get better. But they also provide something to contrast yourself against. If your older brother and sister is really good at tennis, it's going to be hard to be better than them at tennis. They've got a head start on you. They're taller, they're bigger, and they're probably going to be much better. And so younger siblings don't just follow. They also differentiate. They try to separate themselves and craft their own path. Uh, If their brother or sister is good at tennis, maybe they take up baseball. The same thing in our own families. If an older brother or sister is the smart one, we become the funny one. If they're the artsy one, we become the sporty one. And so those individuals in our lives, in this case our siblings or our family members, uh, shape our behavior, often without us even realizing it.
0: Well, it's interesting when we think about the choices that we make, and we don't really think why we make them. We pick this thing over that thing, or we do this thing over that thing. And and But if we stop and think, well, if we stop and think, you know, why we pick one can of pasta sauce over another... Would we be able to figure it out, or is it all just happening behind the scenes?
2: It often is happening below our awareness, often in a way we don't even realize. We did a bunch of research on baby names, looking at why people pick a given name for their child. And if you ask people, they'll give you an answer. People say, oh, I picked this name because it's similar to my aunt's name, or, oh, it was similar to a friend's uh, name that I had growing up. And yet, while we all have these idiosyncratic individual reasons for picking names, when we our kids get to kindergarten, they often end up having the same name as two or three other kids in their class. And so if it's all about being different, how do everyone end up being the same? If we're all trying to separate ourselves. How do we end up being similar? Well, it turns out that without our awareness, we're subtly influenced by what names are popular at the moment. Uh, if, uh, let's say, Lisa's popular, for example, we may not name our child Lisa, but we're more likely to name them Lindsay or Larry, other names that begin with that L sound. Or similarly, hurricanes, Uh, Hurricane Katrina comes around, you'd think no one would name their child Katrina after that. Yet Hurricane Katrina has a big, significant impact on naming patterns. 10% more babies were born with K names after Hurricane Katrina. Again, not the same name as Katrina, but a slightly different name, because hearing Katrina more often made those K names sound better, and as a result, we adopted them. And so even simple things like how good something sounds is not just driven by our own personal preferences, Sometimes it's driven by the things we hear and see in our surrounding environment.
0: But what about once you have a personal preference, is it pretty hard to move people away from that, even with all the things we know or that, well, that you know, (laughs) I don't know them yet, but um, because people have latched onto something, once they have, then it's tough to move them?
2: You would think so, but it's actually surprisingly easy to change people's behavior. You know, imagine you're out to dinner, for example, with a group of friends, Uh, and you're hungry, so you start perusing the menu. You figure out what entree you like, and your stomach starts rumbling. You can't wait for the waiter to come over. Finally, after a couple minutes, they come over. They start taking orders. Your friend of yours orders, and they end up ordering the same entree that you were thinking of getting, the exact same thing. And then it comes to you. Do you pick the same thing, or do you pick something different? And you know, as individuals, uh, as people who think they're independent, we'd love to say, "Well, yeah, I'll stick with the same entree. Of course, you know why would I change my my choice? Yet we don't. Overwhelmingly, people end up changing what they were going to pick, picking something else um, because their friend chose it, and it makes them less happy as a result. They end up being less satisfied uh, with the entree they chose. And so even in this case, it's not just about following others, Sometimes it's about differentiating ourselves, and and that's why I find influence so interesting. You know, they're different flavors. Sometimes we're similar, sometimes we're different, sometimes we're optimally distinct, right in the middle. Sometimes others motivate us, sometimes others demotivate us. And by understanding these subtle and often surprising influences, we can take advantage of their upsides and avoid their downsides.
0: You know, that's an interesting uh, example, uh, one I've often wondered about. If you're going to have the whatever dish and somebody else orders it first— why should that influence your choice now? They should get what they want and you should get what you want. And and, and yet you're right, people change because they don't want to be, look, look like a copycat, I guess, or something.
2: Yeah, I mean, imagine your neighbor bought the car you were thinking of getting. Uh, you'd say, oh, well, I should still buy that car. It's the car I like. Yet the fact that they bought it Makes us a little less likely to buy it. we're worried we're going to look like a copycat. we're worried we're going to look like exactly the same as them, and so we don't uh, we don't imitate and we actually avoid doing what we already liked to try to be different to try to be distinct.
0: What can cockroaches teach us about motivation
2: <laughs> so a great study was done by a number of uh, researchers looking at what motivates people to action uh, in this case, they didn't look at people; they looked at cockroaches. They had cockroaches run little races, so they ran down a track trying to hide away from light, and they timed how fast they ran. Uh, what they found is that cockroaches ran faster when other cockroaches were around. A little cockroach ran faster down the, down the track if other cockroaches were watching that cockroach. And Indeed, decades of research has shown the same thing for people. We do things, many things, though not all things, faster and better when other people are around. You're tying your shoes, for example. You're faster to tie your shoes if someone's watching you. Uh, and similarly, if you're running in a race or uh, uh, you know biking, uh, we're faster to run or bike when when other people are around. The mere presence of others you don't have to be competing with us, but the mere presence motivates us to work harder. But not always. We've always had, uh, we often have that experience, for example, where you're trying to parallel park and someone else is in the car, and you find yourself having more trouble uh, than you usually do. If you've ever tried to tie a bow tie, it's difficult to begin with, but it's even more difficult when a bunch of people are watching you. So when do others make us work faster and harder, and when do others make it more difficult for us to get stuff done? turns out it depends on the type of task we're doing. For things that are easy to begin with, things that we've done a number of times, well, others help us do them faster and better. But for things that we're not so good at, things that are difficult, like parallel parking or tying a bow tie, the mere fact that others are present makes it harder for us to do them well.
0: Isn't that interesting? But you, you're right. It's true. I mean, if, it, if you're having trouble with something, having somebody watch you makes it more difficult for some reason. And you, you, I guess you're more self-conscious of how you're screwing this up or, so, or something. But you're right. Yeah, it's, it, it's really amazing. So knowing, knowing what you know and understanding that all these things are going on, well, what can we do with that information? How, how do you then corral all this and start using it to your
2: advantage? Well, the first thing is awareness, right? If we're, if we're aware of influences, you know, we're often not, but if we become more aware, if we become attuned to how they're shaping us and uh, how they're playing a role in our environment, we can take advantage of them. Influence is not a bad thing. Often it can be a good thing. Uh, it can help us make decisions faster and easier than we would otherwise, and it can motivate us like we talked about. It can encourage us to work harder and perform better than we would. Yet sometimes it leads us astray. Sometimes we make worse decisions when when others are around. And so by beginning to understand influence, how it works and how it shows up in the world, we can take advantage of its upsides and avoid its downsides. And that's really why I wrote Invisible Influence. There's lots of scientific research on influence, but most of us still don't see it. And if we can begin to see it, that's how we can use it.
0: Well, going back to the idea that having people around helps helps you do better and faster and, and all that, what is it about that? What's the magic ingredient that's causing that? What's going on in a person's head that says, people are watching me, I'll do this better?
2: What's called social facilitation, that's the technical term for it, and whether it's a cockroach uh, running down uh, a race or whether it's a person uh, working at the office, others get our competitive juices flowing uh, and they also uh generate uh, physiological arousal they fire us up and they ready us to take action uh, they make it easier for us to engage in the dominant responses or the things that we're we're already good at and in some sense others facilitate what we're already used to doing but again whether that's good or bad depends on the thing we're doing others make it easier for us to do well learned things but more difficult to combat The stuff that we're often used to doing. Having other people around, for example, makes us stereotype more because we're used to the default tendency is to stereotype. And so others around makes us more anxious and we default to those usual tendencies, which in some cases can make us worse off than we would be otherwise.
0: I imagine, too, it depends on who's around, that that something that you might do better with your peers around might be more difficult if your boss is standing there staring at you.
2: Certainly. And it also depends on where they are in relation to us. We did uh, a bunch of research uh, on NBA basketball and, and found that teams uh, that halftime uh, affected their performance at the end of the game in a particular way. Being ahead was generally a good thing, but teams that were behind by just a little were, were more likely to win, not teams that were far behind. They were far behind. They'd get demotivated and give up. The teams that were behind by just a little got motivated more, they worked harder, and, and they closed the gap. And so thinking about the people we surround ourselves with is really important. Uh, if we're trying to motivate ourselves to work harder uh, at the gym or at, uh, at work or lose weight or exercise, we need to surround ourselves with the right people, pick our peers carefully, uh, and use that influence.
0: It's really amazing, because when you talk about this, there's all these things going on around us that are in some ways invisible, or or at least the the force field is invisible, and we don't make those connections, and yet it's happening to us like 24 hours a day.
2: It's hard to think of a a choice we make or a behavior we engage in that is not in some way, shape, or form uh, affected by others. Uh, but again, if we if we understand it, if we can see it, if we can recognize it, that's how we can take advantage of it.
0: Well, and it's good to have you here because, as the title of your book implies, a lot of these influences are invisible. So it's good to have you explain them and reveal how they operate. Uh, Jonah Berger has been my guest. The book is called Invisible Influence: The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior, and there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Jonah. Thanks. This was really interesting.
2: Thank you so much. Good to chat.
0: Everyone knows, or most people know and agree, that Reese's Peanut Butter Cups taste better frozen. And so do Snickers bars, in my opinion. But there are some other foods you would never guess also taste better after some time in the freezer, according to the people at Prevention Magazine. Grapes, for example. Grapes taste like candy when they're frozen, and they're very refreshing. Same thing with strawberries. That frozen crunch makes strawberries taste even better. Birthday cake. While it can be quite dry at room temperature, freezing birthday cake makes it amazing. Avocado slices. Frozen with a little lime and chili powder, and, well, you just have to try it. Pecans. Somehow they're just better frozen. And that is something you should know. If it's been a while since you have, or you never have, left a rating and review of this podcast, I invite you to, I ask you to, it helps us, it helps us in our rankings, it helps us in a lot of ways. So please uh, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.